going to the third view from the hilltop and the last of this fall semester. My name is Justin Goss. I am the editor-in-chief of Georgetown Public Policy Review. I'm oh, Shane McCarthy. Oh, thank you. I'm Shane McCarthy. I'm one of the senior online editors at the Review. Hi, Catherine. Hello, I'm Catherine Lyons. I'm an online editor. Hi, Risa. Hi, I'm Bryson Johnson, and I am the student. I don't know what I do. At the McCourt School of Public Policy. Sure, at the McCourt School of Public Policy. <laughs> We're a homogenous group here. Uh, <laughs> uh, hi, Kevin. Silent, silent partner. Hi, guys. <laughs> oh, breaking new ground. Um, well, so that happened. So that happened. This We're, is going to be an entire So That Happened podcast, I feel. We, if we learned nothing else on November 8th, it was that Rebecca Sitterbrunn of the Washington Post was right, that 2016 was indeed the year of So That Happened. Um, we are coming to you for the first time uh, from a post-Trumpian society, wherein um, he, had, he, has, he, has, he has ideas, uh, or as, or as uh, his one-time opponent, Hillary, said, Donald has issues. Um, and... He's uh, proposed, he, he has a set of proposals that uh, we have some thoughts on called Donald Trump's contract with the American voter. Um, so today, not not super formally or anything like you, usual style what, from what you've come to expect on this podcast, we're going to just run through some of those points because it's it's a long document, so we're not going to cover all of them. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to go through the ones that we think are a little more interesting and then talk about, um, you know, with understanding the most policy proposals that happen on the campaign trail. And this did come out during the campaign. Um, mo most of these, you know, aren't going to get accomplished necessarily, or they're not going to look exactly like how they're written down here. But we're going to talk about just, like, the viability of them as policy outputs, and then we're going to assess, are these good ideas in terms of the policy outcomes? So, let's start us off. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, since there's been a lot of talk about uh, draining the swamp that is Washington, D.C., most outsiders don't realize it is also an actual swamp, but you know that's a, that's a different issue. Um, a few points about lobbying specifically and special interests and their influence in Washington in the proposal. Um, among them, uh, a requirement uh, that there be a five-year ban on White House and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after they leave government service a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government, uh, and a complete ban on foreign lobbyists raising money for American elections. Okay, first question. Yes. So what is a lobbyist according to federal rules or the law of the United States? And like, what is it to lobby according to the law of the United States? Uh, well, generally speaking, you know, implies a lobbyist is somebody who represents a, an interest, be that a business, organization, uh, union, foreign government, whatever the case is, uh, to try and influence political and policy decisions in Washington or in state legislatures, wherever the case may be around the country. Um, the federal government has specific laws in place in terms of federal lobbyists and how they need to register. Um, you know, among those are you know spending, I believe, twenty percent of your time specifically lobbying. There's a few other ones, but you know, I think people have a pretty good idea of what constitutes a lobbyist, a representative on behalf of an organization trying to influence policy decisions. And why does Donald Trump want to ban lobbyists? Uh, I feel like this is something that is very uh, political in nature in that it has the support or you know a general impression among the populace of the United States of the influence or the undue influence of special interests in, in Washington. 
uh, the perception of lobbyists as corrupt, you know, coming off of the Jack Abramoff era, that's sort of been stuck in the mindset of a lot of people uh, since the early 2000s, um, you know, bribing congressional leaders, uh, trying to get their way, um, you know, being funded by big business or interests, going against the will of the people. Um, so regardless of whether that's true, that's sort of the public perception uh, and fits in, I think, nicely with a lot of the themes uh, and the appeal of the Trump campaign. However, though, he's actually hiring a lot of these special interests, so to speak, in terms of CEOs or other major business people as members of his cabinet. So, and Trump has said, I believe it was in the, the 60 Minutes interview that he did, you know, I, I want to go in this direction, but ultimately at the end of the day, you know, these are where the expertise is. And the funny thing is that that's somewhat accurate. There's a, everyone is somewhat familiar with the revolving door. People go to Capitol Hill to work for a couple of years. The salary there is not that great. So they <laughs> subpar. Up, right? well, yeah, we'll say subpar, uh, and then cash out to work you know, in a lobbying firm using their expertise and their connections. Um, the thing about lobbyists is you know, their main job really is education. Uh, you know, telling people about, you know, a lot of the, the issues, you know, obviously sometimes that is quite slanted, uh, you know, working, especially if you're working on behalf of a large corporation or a large organization or what have you. Um, but, you know, a lot of times these are the subject matter experts in their field. Um, I, I seriously doubt that Trump didn't really know this or have an understanding of this before that 60 Minutes interview a week after he won the election. There's no way, right? I mean, right. he, like, when, when his campaign first launched, he himself admitted to engaging in this whole pay-to-play type thing. And he's not a lobbyist per se, but he seems to have a pretty good idea of what being a Washington insider is like, despite his reputation as a Washington outsider. Sure, absolutely. As he said, he's, you know, paid off politicians of all stripes during his business career. It's interesting. So Andy Card, who was chief of staff for uh, President George W. Bush, called lobbying the most ethical job in Washington just because of this nature. You're the one telling people you know, how things work, how the issues sort of are laid out, and then they're the ultimate ones who have to make the decision. I think that's an exaggeration, obviously, but you know that was that's his impression. That's a former lobbyist, I appreciate that. Yeah, you got it. You got it. <laughs> feel so good, then feel do you expect pushback then from its own cabinet? Uh, I don't expect pushback from the cabinet necessarily, considering they're all, we'll say, part of the swamp. I do expect pushback from uh, maybe not even you know congressional leaders because they're within the system. They understand to some extent how it works. I do expect pushback from Trump voters, his electorate, and people who brought him into this office. Um, if this is the first sort of step that he's taking now that he's actually gained the presidency, I feel like that's going to be problematic for him. Can I, can I make one quick aside just because we're talking about his cabinet as, as a collective and there, it's been a lot of news lately uh, in terms of in terms of his appointments is giving us some idea of what policies, he, directions he's going to go in? Sure. Um, people are calling it the team of rivals, all uh, Lincoln's cabinet. Okay, I just want to correct one thing for the historical record real quick because I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd, which is that the team of rivals, the rivals were Lincoln's rivals. Right, like he appointed the same people who ran against him in that presidential race, who were rivalrous towards him, mm. not who. Where, whereas, whereas no one can. People are calling this the team of rivals because Trump is appointing people to lead certain positions who are super anti-free trade and very, very much protectionist, and then he's appointing other folks who are very much free trade and very much globalist. And they're like, oh, this is the team of rivals. No, no, no. Like, incoherency is not the same thing as a team of rivals, right? He wants them to be rivals among themselves, not yeah. with him. Right. right, I'm just saying, the historical yeah, version no. like, stick him across. 
<laughs> with the one exception of uh, Dr. Ben Carson, who I don't even think was that liable risk to Trump. He was there were friends that, there. Yeah. Their buddies. Yeah. That, that one time that Carson didn't hear his name during the debate, uh, the Republican right, debate, right. and he forgot to walk out. Trump stood uh, with him in the in the like green room area until they both came out together. Why are they buddies? That's they, they, seem, they seem like they, they, might, they might be bros. It's yeah. not like him appointing, I don't know, Marco Rubio's organization. Yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. Or Ted yeah. Cruz, right? Anyway, so, you know, just... Sorry. No, that's fine. Specifically on these points, um, it's not like there is a uh, an unprecedented uh, streak in Washington. Barack Obama, of course, has yep. sort of the ban on uh, lobbyists working within his administration to some extent. Um, I he, think, gra- he grants multiple exceptions. Yes, of course. There's, there's always exceptions to the rule in Washington. Um, there's, you know... J- Regulations in place, I believe, in Congress and at the executive level. Uh, I don't. I believe that it's only a year or two after you leave government service, a ban on you lobbying on behalf of certain entities. Um, you know, five years is pretty much at the extreme end of the spectrum. Um, obviously, you know, this is something that he's wanted to pursue. My concern, generally speaking, is the how this is going to result in lack of expertise. Uh, you know, people. If people are worried that they're not going to be able to have this. <coughs> lucrative career later on, quite frankly, the way that uh, government salaries are at the moment, they're less likely to go into government service in the first place. This works at the congressional level. Now this may work to a more extreme extent uh, at the executive level. And and not, and not just that, right? Like, m- most people understand that lobbying is built off of relationships. And, sure. And, you, and usually this is portray- portrayed as, like, sinister backroom deals. But at the same time, suppose you have two lobbyists who are both equally knowledgeable on your subject, but you have a personal history with one and not with the other, you're more likely to li- to trust that person's information is credible when you're listening to that person. So not not only a, not only a lack of a draining of expertise out of the swamp because of the finan- lack of financial incentive, but also just you need a certain amount of these relationships crossing over from government to lobbying lobbying out of the third house. Sure, and then I'm I'm just a little confused about some of the wording here. He wants a complete ban on foreign lobbyists raising money for American elections, yes. a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. Um, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure whether he's talking about, um, you know, for example, he obviously has been in connection with Bob Dole recently, yeah, setting, up the, uh, yeah. setting up the call with the president of Taiwan, um, and also seems perfectly content to deal with people like Paul Manafort, who have no problem dealing with, you know, lobbying on behalf of foreign governments, working with them for their interests. Uh, Maybe he's going to change his mind and change the way that things are done now that he's actually in the office and hold this, but it would be a dramatic departure from the, you know, the associations he's made over the course of the campaign. Yeah, that was one that struck me as bizarre, too, especially when he doesn't seem particularly concerned about the threat, the latent threat of cyber attacks from foreign governments. Right. Um, whereas this this wasn't talked about in the campaign at all no. as, as an issue. Um, it doesn't usually get talked about when we talk about campaign and lobbying reform either, so kind of bizarre. Um, so we'll see. We'll yeah. See. And, and, and so moving, moving over to another one of his points, I wanted to discuss uh, Trump's, what I consider to be Trump's uh, moonshot in his, co- in his contract with uh, the American voter, which is he wants a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on all members of Congress. Uh, so... <laughs> So, real, real, real quick. So this is just this is a little bit in tension with all with all of this lack of expertise that you're already talking about, mm-hmm. right? Because certain state governments have imposed term limits um, 
on, and, and right, term limits, uh, for listeners who might not be familiar, just the idea that right now members of Congress, members of the Senate can run for office as many times as they want. There are no term limits on them like there is for the President of the United States where they serve two terms at most and then term out via the Constitution. Um, in my home state of California, the uh, member members of both the State Senate and the Assembly um, are restricted to, it, they change it to a certain number of years uh, between both chambers, and then you can't serve in that anymore. What is um, that number? Do you know what the top of it? It's 12, yeah, because okay. it's, it's six, each, each term used to be 12 to 16 okay. chaps. Um, and, and so, and the main problem with that though is that when you have members cycling out, you again have this draining of expertise and institutional memory from your political system. And again, Congress super based on relationships, but when you couple this with the lobbying ban, then you could be in some real trouble in terms of lack of institutional memory. The other thing that political scientists have found in studying the effects of this is that usually term limits make lobbyists more powerful because new members of Congress, new members of the Senate, don't know as much about the institution, so they rely on lobbyists who've been around for a while to do that work for them. So, I kind of I kind of skipped to the output first, but also let's also talk about like the feasibility of this, right? Like a constitutional amendment, really? I, it's not going to happen. It's not. <laughs> See, this is the interesting thing. So, the one route by the two thirds of both houses of Congress, I think, is obviously out of the question because they like their job right. security. So, so it's the next person. Right. So that leaves us with going to the state legislatures. Yes. Which I do not believe has ever been done before. So we can fact check about that, but. Maybe a long time ago. Maybe a long time ago, when, when people wore wigs. But um, <laughs> Those were the how days. feasible would that be? Is that something that you could actually pursue? Because, you know, again, turning out to the American people, I think this is something that could gain broad support. Quite frankly, I could envision a situation where I might even support it myself, but members of Congress likely won't. So can we get state legislatures on board? I think it'll be extremely difficult to get... Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, there's a problem thinking 
about it on like the bench of who these next people are going to be. I mean, for the you know in California, we've had up until this election, we have the same two senators yep. for decades. You yep. know, um, and just now, you know, Kamala Harris came into the, that Senate seat, but replacing Barbara Boxer, replacing yeah. Barbara Boxer, um, who is retired uh, now. But I mean, I think you know, it's like we didn't necessarily have a huge plethora of candidates that we could have chosen from every six years for that tendency or whatever the term limit might be. So that's another potential issue is putting people, kind of more forcing people to run for, this, for these seats who might not be prepared to, to be a U.S. senator. So. And I have a question. What do you guys think would happen to fundraising in that case? I mean, a lot of fundraising happens based on people's names and their ability, right. you know, to be almost a shoe in an election. Do you think that that would... Reduce the influence of yeah. money in politics? Yeah. <laughs> Added bonus? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Tough to say because yeah. people have the money to spend on political campaigns, and they'll find they'll find places to stash it either the party or mm-hmm. packs. Sure. That that's yeah that's 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 a fair that's a fair point. But it, but I, I think that certain parties are entrenched are entrenched in different states more more so than others, um, and they'll 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 instead just keep a, a stable of candidates. Because um, I mean that that already happens where. Mm-hmm. Want the incumbent to win, you support the incumbent, especially in like Senate races most of the time, uh, or the party does. Um, so, I, I can I can see that prolonging itself just in a different form. Um, what one thing? I, so I I'll be, I don't know about the feasibility of this. Seventy five percent of the state seems like a lot. I will say so. My consumption of polls has admittedly dropped a little bit since the election. A little bit. Yeah. Um, although although they were not. Someone doesn't like that. Um, <laughs> polls were not as off as people are making them sound like, but that's a conversation for another day. But I will. I, but I will. The analogy that I will say is like in the 1980s, we couldn't get the Equal Rights Amendment passed, right? And like at the Equal Rights Amendment saying that uh, constitutional amendment saying that women are the equals of men and full full same rights and protections couldn't get that passed. And I, I think women are like about. Fifty percent of the population. I think like, that's how like, it goes. Yeah, I think like, that's how it works. Like, yeah. Give or take. So yeah. So so even with like a pretty broad base that you would expect to be in support of that amendment, couldn't get that done. Yeah. Right. As we've seen many a time, uh, popular support does not translate into legislative success in Washington. More silence. Single tear. Okay. So so that that's those are my feelings on on uh, the constitutional amendment. Who's next? Who's who wants? Who's got a pet issue they want to talk about? Who's got a pet? Can we talk about Ben Carson and Hud real quick? No. Sure. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, Sixty seconds. I mean, he just has no expertise, right? And so we don't know. Hud is a he very grew up in the inner city, so there. Right. He he grew up in the inner city as a poor person. They said that. So. And I'm assuming at one point you lived in a house, right? So, but but the, but surrogates have been saying that he knows what he's doing with HUD because he grew up in public housing, but that's not true. It's not true. He did grow up in public housing, which is so such a weird thing to say. Why yeah. they're, where they're getting that from? Um, he's actually never even said that, so I don't know. That is like a talking. So it's like, are you just equating the inner city with public housing? Yeah. And, and wow. You are. <laughs> got real racist all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah, it's, but you know, I think HUD, people look at HUD as like this poverty program, and, and certainly that's what they do, but <coughs> they also ensure 
what almost uh, like a fifth, twenty percent of, of of home mortgages. Yeah. Um, and they become increasingly important after the the recession. And so it worries me that we're putting in someone who who knows nothing of these complexities in charge of that federal agency. My my thing about this is. He came out and said he was disinclined to do it because he had no experience running a large federal bureaucracy. Right. But that was for health and human yeah, services. That's where arguably he might have the most experience. Right. And yet he saw no problem experience. with you know running for president. The, well, that's the other thing. Yeah. I, it seems to be inconsistent, but uh, anyway. You know, so I that and the lie tech program. I know we don't want. Are we going to talk about tax reform at all? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cap, Cap, what happens to the, the, the low income housing tax credit, which I think is actually a really great program that has resulted in a lot of really good, like affordable housing being built. Right. Um, Can you explain that program real quick? Can I? And then, <laughs> so the low income housing tax credit is every state gets an allocation of tax credits which they then turn around and give to developers. And then developers usually sell those tax credits for dollars, and so they get more than, than usually like a dollar per credit, so it's extremely lucrative, but it also allows these developers to put housing and what would be, in the natural market, this housing, this affordable housing wouldn't occur, but these developers can do it and they can offer lower rates. And in conjunction with Section 8, like housing choice vouchers, um, usually those two work hand in hand to make these uh, units available to low and moderate income Americans. And so, Catherine, you did a deep dive for us back during the actual uh, campaign election about uh, Trump's tax plan. Yes. So, right. so what do you what do you what do you think? We didn't specifically focus on this program with tax credits. Yeah. We but. Based on based on the broader strokes of this tax plan, that we very funny very funny Kevin one day one day your contributions will come to light. Um, but ba based on just the broader strokes that we talked about yeah. with his tax plan, how what do you what do you see for programs such as the affordable housing tax credits? Not good things. Not good. Yeah. Um, so I mean, overall, I'm looking back at this uh, the tax policy card, and I mean. Essentially, he wants to reduce taxes across the board. Which he's calling um, in his contract with the American voter Middle Class Tax Relief and Simplification Act. Right. So I think he's actually taking our current tax bracket system of seven tax brackets and truncating them down to three. Um, so that is uh, not unprecedented. I think Reagan did something similar as well, but um, certainly <coughs> quite a change from our current tax code. Um, he would, of course, you know, uh, be lowering taxes for the wealthiest one percent. Um, that would be a result of that combination um, of the tax brackets. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it'd also be, you know, with eliminating the Affordable Care Act, um, we are eliminating the tax there as well. So, essentially, he's looking for all the opportunities he possibly can to reduce taxes. Um, you know, not only for in normal tax code. Uh, in terms of like the brackets, but also in programs, you know, across the board for usually that usually benefit low to moderate income individuals as well. So hmm. um, we're also finding like the overall impact, you know, on the debt, which of course is going to be a huge issue. Um, maybe not in his presidency, but at least you know very shortly thereafter. I think a lot of people are saying that 2030 is sort of this potential tipping point for when Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, uh, you know, costs are going to kind of surpass um, our GDP. 
Um, and so, you know, that's on the horizon, you know, not in too far, too far distant future. Um, and it's looking like this tax plan would, you know, actually increase the debt by $5.3 trillion. That's, um, that's a pretty big number. Um, and it would rise to, the, our debt would rise to above 105% of our GDP. Do we know, um, do you know what it's at currently? Yeah, it's around 72% okay. of our so GDP. That's like so a 30% point swing. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of this, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of these programs are heavy on spending. So the border wall, of course, is one of those, which I can talk a little bit more about in a minute. But um, but in addition, to, you know, this big infrastructure package, which is one of the things that he's outlined this contract and his first entity plan. Um, now, he says that it will generate enough economic activity to actually cancel out. Um, so essentially budget neutral. Yes, he refers to it as revenue, as revenue yeah, neutral. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, and same thing with the wall, that he's going to insist that Mexico pay for that wall, and so therefore that will actually be something that will be part of explain that to me? How do you make a foreign government pay It's for? actually it's like tariffs and trade, I think, in some way. It doesn't, it's not happening, so. Right. Yeah, he, I, I mean, Mexico has pretty vehemently said that they will not be paying for this wall, so. Um, but I think it's in some way, shape, or like, related to our trade with Mexico and, and you know, tariffs on that and using them to pay for the wall. It's like barely worth talking about because it's not going to happen. But. So, so <laughs> tax reform was one of the things that was talked about briefly as one area where you may actually be able to find you know, bipartisan support, presumably you know, among a lot of Trump's proposals. Yeah. But now, I feel like a lot of this is going to be a Republican pushback more than among the Democrat pushback who are upset that it will be you know, much less equitable. Yeah. Well, the, diving really quickly into a, a instantiation of how he's already started to implement tax reform, sort of, even before he's president, is the carrier deal, mm -hmm. um, where right. he's promised certain tax credits, yeah. um, he's promised uh, a lower corporate tax rate. Yes. Um, By about 20% lower. This yeah. is very anti-Republican Party dogma in that right, sense, right. where this is very much intrusion into the free market, and we we haven't, I, at least I haven't heard this uh, term thrown around all that recently, but this is very much government picking winners and losers, mm -hmm. which is everything that Republicans hate, yes. where the market is the, is the best decision maker or anointer of which firm, company, whatever you want to call it, is the best producer of whatever good. Um, I never, ever thought I would say this, but I want to give a shout out to Sarah Palin for actually calling it, calling it, calling it out capitalism for conservatism. Yeah. So, good on you, Sarah. Um, but, so, so it's, ve it's very anti-Republican dogma, but, but a lot of people are also, so he said, he says, he's been a little, a little specious with the numbers sometimes saying he saved a thousand jobs that would have gone to Mexico, sometimes saying closer to 800 that he yeah. saved that would have gone to Mexico. Um, but even even there, right? Like the macro economy destroys and creates tens of thousands of jobs every quarter. Sure. And so the and, and at the end of the day, these corporate tax breaks are not the reason that the companies tend to send their business overseas. It's the cost of labor. Right, right. Which he is not he can't do anything. To change as president, just because America has higher has a higher standard of living than some countries where we outsource jobs to, um, 
and therefore people command higher wages here. It's a similar situation with you know, the coal industry. It's not that we're trying to wreck coal. It's that, it's that the, well, sure, yeah, we can jump into that in a minute, but it's because you know, a lot of different factors in the energy market, the natural gas boom. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not, cheaper. it's cheaper. Right. It's not economically feasible to yeah. mine coal to the same extent that we used to in the past. And there's really not a lot you can do about that. Can I talk about, can I talk about this real quick? Sorry. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Because this, this is the policy card that I wrote about during the election, which is, it, so in his contract, quote, I will lift restrictions on the production of $50 trillion worth of job-producing American energy reserves, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. Okay, first, natural gas, there, there are no restrictions on natural gas, right? Like, we're, not, we're in the middle of a natural gas, like, energy bonanza right now, um, and, you know, say what you want about the environment, but it's been great for industry and manufacturing, and that's the reason that, I mean, the, the average American voter is seeing much lower prices at the pump than we've seen these, these last, like, last year and a half than we've seen in the past couple decades. Thanks, Obama. Right, exactly. Yeah, because Obama and his administration have been extremely friendly to natural gas. There's been some scientific study on uh, the harms of fracking, which is one of the easiest ways that we are able to access certain hard-to-reach pockets of natural gas. But there hasn't been any kind of moratoriums based on that research or anything like that. Like, he's been super friendly to it. And to be fair, the technology has developed very quickly, too, over the last few years. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you develop money, or yeah. develop technology that basically prints in money for you? Exactly. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> God bless America and American capitalism. <laughs> Um, but so, so natural gas is not, is not being, is not hard up in terms of Obama administration regulations. The other thing is he mentions clean coal. Okay. Very simply, coal has not gone out of business because of environmental regulations, even though if it were priced appropriately, it probably would. Priced appropriately in terms of its homes on the environment. It has gone out of business because natural gas is cheaper to extract and produces more energy per unit burned than coal is capable of doing. Coal is just has simply become a mostly outdated technology that can't keep up in the energy in the energy business. Um, and so, honestly, the biggest the, the most apt comparison to coal at this point is nuclear. Or both of them are very expensive to run, um, but you don't hear you don't hear politicians of any type saying like we need to subsidize those poor nuclear worker jobs. Um, so politically speaking, you know, just on a side note, you know, what happens four years from now when after Trump realizes this the situation <coughs> hasn't changed and voters in Western Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Ohio haven't really seen any uh, you know saving up their coal jobs? So I. Uh, interview interview release pending, but I sat down with uh, Juana Summers of CNN, who was a geopolitics fellow um, earlier this semester, and she did an awesome piece on um, the Forgotten Tribe in West Virginia, where it, she went and visited one of these coal mining towns, counties, um, that had mostly been just depleted of infrastructure and resources, and there are very few jobs, and this is these are exactly the quote-unquote angry whites, angry working-class whites that were, that were supposedly supporting Trump. And this is the anecdotal evidence, obviously. But a lot of these, in a lot of these interviews, the folks weren't saying, I 100% believe that Trump is going to bring back the coal industry um, and it's going to be just like it used to be. But I can't 
vote for Hillary Clinton who is literally saying that she's going to regulate or outlaw my job. But she had a plan, right? I mean, at least she had plans to do like job trainings and invest money into those areas. Sounds like that didn't translate. It's 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 into into these into these more rural communities mm-hmm. just because they are more rural and the, the other problem with that is like there you don't just need the education there you also need the infrastructure yeah. so unless folks unless you're either willing to supply both the knowledge the know-how and the infrastructure or folks are willing to relocate to places where they can use that know-how um, that's an issue but honestly it sounds like a good plan then because infrastructure makes jobs so, you know, we could have made that investment. That's true, and, that's true. And I feel like, you know, Trump isn't talking about any of that. Well, so, sorry, sorry, to, sorry to keep arguing with you. but so Please you, do. Okay. <laughs> but, so you, you mentioned, Catherine, uh, Trump's infrastructure plan. So let's, let's dive over there real fast. Yeah, sure. So um, in this document, he refers to it as the American Energy and Infrastructure Act, um, which is a series of public private partnerships, and private investment through tax incentives to spur $1 trillion in infrastructure investment over 10 years, revenue neutral. So that just Trump, sounds like a bunch of words, if I mean to go on. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's probably, I mean, like the $1 trillion and the revenue neutral bit is the part that stands out to me. Yes. So I feel like he is being, would you say that $1 trillion is, is like, too high, too low, about right in terms of like what it, what American infrastructure improvement should be priced at to start with. I mean, I have no like real background in this, but I would imagine it probably. I mean, it probably is what we need. I mean, yeah. our roads are like right. totally. I mean, in many cases, our roads are falling apart, our bridges are falling apart. I mean, we do need. I mean, our our public transportation systems absolutely need a huge upgrade. All these things are incredibly expensive. Um, I would imagine that the one trillion is. Probably not terribly far off, although I'm not coming from a transportation or infrastructure policy background. No, I, I think I think I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, supposedly, yeah. supposedly, like the last Congress licensed a few hundred billion to repair roads. Um, I was reading the other day that it would cost something like five hundred billion just to repair our water infrastructure. Granted, yeah. um, our water infrastructure is pretty big; uh, it makes up a lot of infrastructure. But yeah, I, uh, so yeah, I think and like modernizing. I mean, the high speed rail is something we've been talking about. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, in terms, of, from what I've heard and professors that I've spoken with about this, it's near impossible that no matter how much money you pour into infrastructure, the jobs created are just not going to result in a revenue neutral program of a scale of magnitude. But, but it's all public private partnerships, right? Like, so, I'm being facetious. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, like, isn't this what Obama wanted to do? Once again, it seems like a populist plan, but it's a politically feasible. I mean, I think a couple points. One, 
say this is a, a proposal we're still starting to the weeds. We, we are starting to see a little bit of pushback from Mitch McConnell and the Republicans who are seeing this as the equivalent of a giant stimulus package that is right. not really coherently funded. Also, there's no real requirement, you know, based on what Trump has put forward, that this will actually spur investment in new projects. It may simply give tax breaks and incentives to companies who are undergoing projects that are already right. in the okay. works. Yeah. There's no real indication either that it'll actually, for lack of a better term, focus the attention on the needed but not as sexy projects, filling in the potholes, you know, upkeep of the infrastructure. And going back to Carrier, where was the hurt? Where was the uh, the stick in like if you outsource jobs, we don't which know. they still are, right? He didn't save all the jobs; he saved less than half of them, correct? Yeah, hundreds are still going to Mexico. We don't know. So he got so Carrier got a tax break for outsourcing jobs, essentially, which is the exact opposite. Oh yeah, oh it's yeah. a it's a terrible incentive because the, yeah. incent, the what it tells other companies to do is like give me a deal or a break or I'm going to go to another country too. Right. And then for how long do, so they're not going to outsource these like 400 whatever jobs, but for how long? Is that for a year, two years, five years, ten years? Can they turn around and be like, things have changed and now we have to? And so that, you know. America got too great and now we're too high. Yeah. I mean, also the price tag on this was huge. It was like $700 million or something like that. So, I mean, that is a very large amount of money to be, you know, subsidizing a company per se. You know, to say that 400 jobs is not insufficient. I mean, certainly that's it's a lot of jobs and a lot of people's <coughs> livelihoods, but um, it's also a lot of money. So, yeah. Also. Also. Oh my God, Kevin Speaks. The man behind the camera. Um, a. Carrier executive in an interview said that most of the money they got from that deal is going to be going into research in automation. So, oh, wow. Yeah. oh wow! So they don't get outsourced replaced by robots. <laughs> so yeah, the factory might still be in the U.S., but but, that, but that's it. It's yeah, at least we'll be able to look at it and say that's ours. And then we'll next to all that is our dear sweet TPP, or my dear sweet TPP. Oh, you want you want to jump over to trade? I mean. Well, I just in terms of like outsourcing and what countries win and what countries lose. Real, real, real fast. Can I just sure. tie, tie tie a bow in the in the infrastructure thing? Wrap it up. Wrap it yeah, up. wrap it up. Um, <laughs> you, you said it so well. I, there, there's no better way to say it. Um, there's no way this is revenue neutral. There's no way. That's that's simply not how public private partnerships work. But like public private partnerships are either the government. Pays a company, a private company, consistently supply a service that the government cannot provide, in which case government's paying for it, or the private sector uh, spots the government alone in the short term that the government has to then pay back for a much larger. This is usually on the like state and local level, where state and local governments can't afford these massive infrastructure investments. Um, there's literally no way this is revenue neutral. If this was revenue neutral, then the $50 million needed to be spent in Flint, Michigan to give them safe drinking water would have already been spent. Right? They're, so, yeah. Uh, well, there are black people in Flint, Michigan. That's true. <laughs> but... Yeah. It's like more likely white. But... <laughs> surely, surely if it was $0... I don't know. <laughs> now we're getting to real now, art now, 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 I'm, now I'm sad. <laughs> can, I, can I tell a joke? Yes? What do you call it when a congressman takes you out to dinner but doesn't pay? An unfunded mandate. <laughs> <laughs> Turning that right around. Kevin shaking his head. Alright, moving on. Alright, we're on. Oh my god. Seemed appropriate. <laughs> we may have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs>
not, because, not because it's wrong, but because All right. I, I don't know. Um, okay, let's talk, let's talk about trade. I mean, once again, not my area of expertise, but I actually am not against TPP like most of American politicians seem to be. I actually think it was, it achieved the goals that Obama set up to achieve. It, it, it gave us a certain amount of influence. And in Asia, which I think is, is important as China attempts to expand its influence there. I think that the amount of economic growth that it would have provided to nations like Vietnam cannot be understated. I think it also, you know, the one issue was with the, the, the medical patents. I think that that could have raised the cost and people would have suffered in the long run. But I think the protection of intellectual property was actually really important in order to help innovation. People need incentives for that, and if they're not going to get their money out of it, then they're not going to do research and development. So, yes. So, so I, I think I think a lot a lot of us sitting in this room are probably more pro free trade than a lot of but than a lot of American voters. Um, one thing. So, just to lay the groundwork, the thing about thing about free trade is it leads to cheaper goods, right? Where you, if, if a if a certain company or country has a competitive advantage in producing goods cheaper than your own country, then you want those goods to get really cheaper overall. The reason that people hate TPP or trade in general is because they think it destroys jobs. Which there's some truth to that because you're outsourcing production of whatever materials that you're obtaining from other countries. So the thinking behind being pro free trade is that the decreased cost of goods that you get out of it more than offsets the loss of jobs in those specific sectors mm -hmm. and allows the economy to grow faster. And so, you know, economists have looked at this and I think that there, I think I agree that like largely that's not going to happen with it. If the TTP, if the TPP were to be passed, the amount of jobs or jobs would be lost and the amount like comparatively of the American dollar probably not or sorry, people's spending capacity, is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Like people would be able to their dollar would go further. But that wouldn't oh, actually yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. make up for the loss of jobs in the US economy. I so, you know, is the TPV worth it in that <coughs> sense? Is it economically like better for the US? I don't necessarily think so, but I think the other things that it does are important enough to see it go through. I think there's two elements here that yeah, really aren't necessarily considered as much as one. Yeah, we are concerned about jobs in America. We are concerned about that dynamic and our purchasing ability. We're also concerned about human rights in Vietnam. We're also concerned about labor conditions around the world. On one hand, I think that's you know worth recognizing. People say there is we don't exist in a vacuum. Also, you know, there is the political element to TPP. It was done, you know, with the purpose, I think, you know, somewhat intentionally of providing sort of a buffer against China. Again, we don't exist in a vacuum. You know, China's been pushing China. China. China's been pushing Jackson. China's been pushing <laughs> the Asian infrastructure and investment bank. Uh, you know, the United States has not been a signatory uh, on it for probably political reasons, but the UK is on board, Australia's on board, Canada's on board, I think Germany's on board. You know, they're looking for this opportunity. If TPP isn't going to go through, other countries aren't just going to sit on their hands. They're going to go, you know, where the deals are to be made. And that's going to be, you know, with, the China, with China. And NAFTA was attacked because mm -hmm. because of the loss of jobs, mm -hmm. you know, 
namely to Mexico, is there actually any evidence to support that that's what happened? That NAFTA was the, the catalytic effect behind job loss? Or would that have happened anyway? It's hard to tell. It's a hypothetical. Right. I, there's evidence to support that NAFTA increased our trade deficit because of the quota requirements in it, which does certain things to the economy, not necessarily positive or negative, depending on what, like, what the goods that you're importing are. Um, right, because we import mostly like raw materials and like petroleum mm -hmm. from Mexico and, ex and export, you know, fin finished goods that, that gets, get produced over here. Um, no, I don't. I don't think there's causal evidence to say that NAFTA killed jobs in the U.S. So I think that's an important assumption to understand as we, as we, you know, I think probably PPP is largely dead, but I think it's important to understand what are the assumptions that were made behind it, and looking forward to free trade. Also, I think it was like a restructuring of how we do free trade. I am a proponent of free trade, but I do think that a lot of the free trade agreements that the U.S. has set up abroad have been largely detrimental to the developing nations that they were made with. I think it's a lot of it was neoliberal policy which indebted developing nations to the US. I think the TPP was an attempt to to have a free trade agreement that that didn't do that. And so I like those aspects of it. Yeah that's that's the weird thing is in the mid two thousands everybody talked about NAFTA as being terrible for Mexico mm -hmm. where we were completely the beneficiaries of that. So we just got cheap raw materials to, mm -hmm. pr to produce more expensive manufactured goods and then sell those on back. I mean, I'd be willing to speculate that free trade has not has become unpopular, not because of the economics of it per se, but because in addition to populism, Trump very much re represents an isolationist America first mindset. Yeah. Um, and so, and and the whole idea of free trade is like good, good economics, but also like this idea of like you know utopian globalist globalized society, um, which Trump absolutely represents the uh, negation the negation of that ideal. Speaking of globalization, we have a little bit about immigration. Yeah, we're talking about Mexico already, so let's let's, let's, <laughs> talk, let's, let's talk about the wall that started it all. Yeah, um, so I think uh, this is probably one of the best. Um, upsetting uh, areas of policy that he has a lot of power actually to potentially implement. Um, I mean, the first thing is uh, the repeal of DACA, um, which will more than more likely than not happen on day one. And DACA is... Sorry, oh. to, yeah, so DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So that is a program that President Obama announced in 2012 uh, to protect from deportation uh, dreamers, mm -hmm. uh, which is what we uh, generally call them, but they are children who arrived here before the age of 16, you know, generally with their parents, but um, not of their own volition. So right. the idea is like, don't punish these kids who only know America as their home because of the acts of their parents. Um, so uh, after the DREAM Act failed to go forward, uh, DACA was announced. And so 800,000 um, you know, people our age, you know, about their jobs uh, in the time of kind of their the start of their careers or wanting to go to college have been able to do that. Um, they've been able to answer the military, right? right? Yeah, they can serve the military. Um, I think it's important to know that they can't get legal status. Um, this is just like deprioritizing you know, sort of deprioritizing them in terms of deportations. Um, so they can go to school, sign some states, you can actually qualify for institute tuition, which is really cool. Um, so a lot of them are able to get more opportunities like that. 
um, and are able to work, so they get work authorization as well. Um, so that seems to be uh, something that will likely be repealed. Um, that said, there's a, an act that just got introduced by a group of bipartisan senators um, in a couple of days ago called the Bridge Act, um, which would essentially seek to keep these provisions in place for the next three years. Um, so it would codify this in law so that the president or president-elect Trump can't just come in and repeal an executive order, which is very much within his power to do. Um, so if the Bridge Act's passed, then uh, then these people would be protected for potentially the more years. Um, same cannot necessarily be said about the other. Uh, you know, about one, uh, tw 10 million undocumented immigrants that are currently living in the U.S. So, um, you know, is there going to be a mass deportation force? Uh, will they all get deported in the next two years? Um, it's projected that that will cost $600 billion to accomplish. Um, so likely, no. Um, and I think there will be a significant pushback uh, from, I think this is where we might see some bipartisan, uh, or coming across the aisle, that they won't really allow that to just for the sheer cost of it, but also um, there's a lot of moral dilemmas that we as well. So, what are these sanctuary cities doing? Yeah, so the sanctuary cities essentially um, are cities that receive federal funding in terms of law enforcement activities, which is you know just a very general um, thing. That's that's just something that happens. Um, the federal government usually gives law enforcement a certain amount of money to you know. To, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, do their activities. Um, what Trump is threatening to do is anyone that is a sanctuary city, so these are cities like LA, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, um, to actually take away a lot of that federal funding for law enforcement. Um, all that a sanctuary city does is basically say that they are going to be enforcing local law, but that these law enforcement will not be federal law enforcement agencies um, and, and do the work of federal law enforcement agencies. So they won't become ICE agents, um, you know, they won't stop people on the street and ask them for their papers. Um, of course, if these people are committing a certain level of crime, and they they are in fact you know uh, undocumented immigrants, um, they will cooperate with ICE, of course, to put them either detain or deport them. Um, you know, but they're not going to generally ask about their their immigration status mm -hmm. um, as local law enforcement officials. They've got bigger fish to fry in most cases. They're not equipped to do this. Um, they don't have like kind of the civil rights training to do it in an appropriate way. Um, and so they've just said that they're not going to do that. The federal government has been okay with that, um, and so they've been designated as sanctuary cities. All right. Um, yeah. So what what's under threat here is potentially um, having that funding for law enforcement agencies taken away or limited in some fashion, uh, which he has said that he would be interested in doing. And there is a good amount of Republican support for that. And so um, he's, he's also said specifically that he's going to because he wants to single out criminal undocumented, yes. undocumented migrants. Right. Um, and here he says that he's going to deport the more than two million criminal illegal immigrants from the country. So, yeah. But I read that there aren't two million there, criminal there undocumented folks in the U.S. right now. Right, so he's like vastly broadening what the definition of criminal is. Um, and so I think that will apply to misdemeanors, you know, traffic oh. violations, things like that. Um, whereas now, I mean, um, and I, I don't exactly remember the, the qualification or what, you know, what gets you to the you know, qualifications of criminal or designation of a criminal, but it's pretty usually um, fairly hefty crimes. Um, so what he's proposing to do is that like, a misdemeanor would qualify you as a criminal. 
Well, if you're, if you're talking about tribe violations, that's an infraction. I mean, yeah, potentially. So um, I don't want to go on the record with that one because I'm not exactly sure if like tribe violations sure, is fair it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, it's generally vastly broadening that definition, which is how you get to the number of two million. Um, and most people in the immigration uh, reform community or like just those advocating on behalf of immigrants, that is very much not the number that they're using to in terms of who's in this country illegally and who's a criminal. That number is pretty small. So, um, yeah, and then the wall, of course, which we touched on earlier. Yeah, so um, is there any efficacy to building a physical wall? No. Okay. <laughs> Janet Napolitano once said, if you show me a 20-foot wall, I'll show you a 21-foot ladder. Yeah. So. I mean, that's right? That's uh, that's true. And then and it wasn't then, Trump's response, although they're 20, 22. I think then. he said, he keeps like saying 30 feet. You know, as soon as Mexico <laughs> said for the second time they weren't going to build it, and then he said, fine, it's now 30 feet tall. <clears> so, like, that makes a big difference. Um, no, if there's no efficacy to it. Uh, you know, what we're seeing more often migratory patterns are changing. Um, more people actually went back to Mexico last year than came in from Mexico um, because their economy is doing a lot better. And so there are more opportunities there and they're going back. Um, a lot more people are coming in, flying into LAX and overstaying their visas. Um, you know, that they were they had a three month tourist visa and they're overstaying that. Um, you know, that is happening far more often um, than necessarily these people like physically jumping a border. Um, and, yeah, and there's technology, there's you know biometric screenings is something that's been talked about. Sure, could the border get more secure? Absolutely, um, and you know there are plans to up border enforcement. That was a key piece of the 2013 immigration law that was passed in the Senate uh, and authored by you know eight bipartisan senators. You know that's fair. You know let's up that border security, but also like let's use the technology that actually makes way more sense for tracking who these people are coming into the country. Um, rather than, you know, building a physical obstruction, um, of which there are already a lot of physical obstructions along our border. Um, so Manuel Pastor, he's up for yeah, right, USC. Yeah, he yeah. was like, he said building a wall, we're not so much, you know, preventing people from coming in as much as we are, like, pinning them into the U.S. now because of, like, the net negative. So, like, people aren't able to go back to Mexico because of the wall. Yeah, that was apt. It, yeah, it makes sense. And there's already, like, like, there's, like, already miles of security events yes. on the border, right? and physical barriers. I mean, there are, you know, a mile, hundreds of miles of physical barriers yeah. that already exist, and then plus, yeah, uh, a huge fence. <coughs> I mean, if you go down to Florida and California, it's, it's, like, not a tiny fence. It's pretty, it's pretty sizable. Um, so there does not need to be an even greater concrete structure there to curb our immigration. So, yeah, and that's not to mention even, like, the potential impacts on high-skilled workers, too, that he's talking about. mentioned the huge demand, the huge demand in the uh, federal government for cybersecurity workers to, you know, actually protect our national security interests, which is severely lacking right now. Right. 
And again, is this just another populist proposal, or is this something that he's that he has based in, in, in prior policy? I mean, the increasingly everyone is calling for increases in H1Bs. Not, um, you know, right now the market demand is way higher than our current supply. We have capped H1Bs since the 1980s to 65,000 uh, visas. Um, 85,000 if you include um, 20,000 sets of master's degrees. Um, and last year we had 240,000 people apply for those visas through the lottery system. So clearly the demand is there. Um, and these are employer sponsors. So these are all people who have a job at a company if they get that lottery. And if they do not, then they have to figure out either an entirely other like option, of which there aren't a ton, or they go back to their home country. So we're losing that talent, that potential you know competitiveness um, that we could have with people here. Um, so, yeah, no, generally, this is actually something that has bipartisan support, that, you know, if people are getting educated here, why are we sending them back um, <coughs> you know, to their home countries to compete against us? Um, and yet, you know, now he's calling on on lowering that number further. So that, I think, is, you know, one of more of a populism, like, you know, let's make sure Americans get the jobs first. Unfortunately, we're, a lot of Americans just don't have the skills for these jobs. Or, um, and then additionally, you know, a lot of these people are actually creating U.S. shops as well, just by um, growing companies, by making them more productive. You know, we're creating a lot of jobs that U.S. citizens will eventually get. And with those H-1B visas, there's already a requirement that a company has to prove that they've looked for. Um, yeah, yeah. Generally, as I mean, citizens before they bond. Sure, and to be honest, like those are some provisions that can be strengthened. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yes, I mean, the idea is that there has been a search completed before a job is filled by an immigrant worker before a U.S. worker. Um, you know, there are ways around that. Um, so that's why there could be some strengthening there. But, but generally, yes, it's the case. Also, that would seem like the easiest way to go if you actually wanted to get something done instead of creating some type of ban or reduction yeah. of H1, which seems like yeah, just the way that you're sounding doesn't right. seem like it's going to happen either. Yeah, I mean, like, raise the wage floor, do other things that right. make it, like, more fair and more competitive for U.S. workers. Um, that's something that seems to be more on the table, um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. But um, one thing, one positive note on immigration is that Chris Kobach did not get the DHS job. Yes. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm, you know, clearly showing my bias here, but... Um, basically, he was a, an extreme hardliner um, uh, from Kansas on this issue, um, and instead a general got position, but he seems to be a little bit more open to, um, you know, other opinions on, on these issues. So uh, that is one thing to, to look out for, that there might be some areas of compromise. To, um, I, was trying to find, I was trying to find a case. Um, there is a court case. To your question, is there a policy precedent for this? There is a court mm -hmm. case um, where a school was trying to hire a uh, foreign theologian to come and lecture at their university, and the law at the time prevented them from doing so. Um, that court case took place in the early 19th century. Um, so, so uh, tongue in cheek, yes, there is. Uh, some there's some precedent for this, some but, it, but it's been a little while. Yeah, and that's before immigration law was actually even like created. Our modern immigration law sounds like so that didn't even happen until like 1965. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a number of other uh, points to this that we could talk about, but in the interest of time, uh, I think 
we've all, we've yeah. all going to talk about. Our we'll do round two in the next semester. There's, I'm sure <laughs> there will be so plenty that comes up. Much. By the way, I want to be the first one to go on record here and invite President-elect Trump to come on this podcast. Here, here. We would love to talk with you about policy. That's the one consideration. <laughs> so, if you're up to it, come on by. We are not. We are a nonpartisan organization. Exactly. Um, now we can say so that happened in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what did happen, guys? What did happen? Yeah. So, so let's let's get it. Let's get into it. Um, I'll start. I we're, have... We're, so, sorry. Because, we agreed before this that because Rebecca Senator was right yes. that, that 2016 was the year of So That Happened, we're going to do our So That Happened, which is the thing that we just haven't been able to get out of our heads, our, our favorite So That Happened for all of 2016. Oh, man. All right. So, Shane, what do you got? You know what? I, I, I'm going to highlight some good news this week. I want to uh, praise the passage in the Senate of the 21st Century CARES Act. A lot of negativity and uh, partisanship, but I think this is one area where, you know, we've seen a lot of, I think, positive cooperation. So I want to applaud that. Uh, I don't know. In terms of crazy things that have happened, you know what? Come back to me. I need, I need, I need, to, I need to mull this over here for a second. Oh, you want, oh, you want to too? Wait, well, you want to talk about the 21st Century CARES Act or no? <laughs> sure, basically. Okay. Well, yeah, so in a nutshell, three major factors that uh, are of most importance. One, uh, providing funding or uh, mental health resources uh, throughout the United States. I think it's important to note this is the four-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook shooting. It may have taken us this long to actually get some momentum on some of these issues, but we're finally there, and I hope that we can move forward further on this. Uh, provides funding to help uh, begin to combat the opioid epidemic in the United States, uh, and uh, provides further funding to help uh, fund uh, Joe Biden's cancer moonshot program. So, good news all around. And bipartisan legislation. Bipartisan. For change. Wow. Um, and like a really moving moment at the uh, at the um, the podium in the Senate, right? Where everybody, because uh, Joe Biden actually, since he worked on the cancer moonshot, um, all the senators on both sides of the aisle came up and uh, congratulated right. and, cha and changed one of the uh, clauses in the act uh, to be named after Joe Biden, Joe, Joe Biden's son, wow. who uh, died of cancer this year. And of course, you know, there's always pushback from you know more liberal and the more conservative ends, but that's how Washington. Elizabeth Warren did not like this bill. That's right. Um, all okay. So all that right. happened. So that happened. Um, all right, my mine's low hanging fruit, but uh, I, I think I've developed a reputation for take, taking weird 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 avenues in this segment. Um, last time I talked about pandas, um, but for 2016, there for my for my so that happened. There's no better money than Jim Webb killed man. Um, you all, you all may remember, or maybe not, um, this, oh my god, wait, was this 2016? Yeah, yeah, this was, right? It was, it was, it was one of the only, you know what? oh my god, am I cheating? Am I cheating? Oh, no. Honorary 2016. Oh god, That's the campaign was so long that it blended together in one super year. Okay, I'm I'm, che I'm cheating. I'm cheating. I can't I can't differentiate. No, no, no that's more. fine. That can, still counts. Okay, Senator Webb, if you want to come on the podcast, we'd love to. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, but during the one of the only Democratic primary debates of the campaign cycle, um, the candidates were asked a question something along the lines of. Um, who are your enemies? Yeah, who are, who are, who are your enemies? And Jim Webb said, there's 
there there was a uh, member of the Viet Cong. You could, but I don't think you can ask him anymore. And then he gave the most sinister smile that I've ever seen on a debate <laughs> stage ever. And that, and that was when Jim Webb went viral in, in his legislative career in the whole Jim Webb killed man. And to be fair, reading the account of what actually happened is amazing. They, he, he, Jim Webb um, stepped in front of his company, saved multiple lives on the field of battle. Um, it, it was like something out of a video game where they threw a grenade at his unit's feet and he picked it up and threw it back into the bunker. Sure. And then single-handedly went into that bunker to, to root out possible intelligence from, that, from the Viet Cong. Um, so amazing, amazing act of heroism. But in that moment where, and I can't do it justice talking about it here, but uh, maybe Kevin can edit the GIF in or something. Probably not. It sounds like a lot, a lot of work. Um, but in that, in that moment on the debate stage where Jim went, like shrank in his collar and, and, and basically just said, I killed someone. I mean, that's pretty metal to me. Amazing, really amazing yeah. moment of the campaign. And by, by far the best part of that debate. So that happened. So that happened. Catherine? Um, so, I mean, I think an ongoing so that happened is just everything that's on Donald Trump's Twitter account. Uh, yes. So, yeah. yeah. Do you have anything um, specific for us? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I mean, let me look it up right now. Uh, I don't have anything on the top of my head. Do you guys have anything to add on his Twitter account? He got in that fight with the uh, union boss about the oh, carrier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He got it on Twitter fights. Um, I think what was great was when SNL pulled open um, made fun of this where he was actually retweeting just like American random people, yeah, random people, <laughs> and on SNL they're like, "This actually happened." Um, so that was kind of a funny moment. Um, also, the weird tension between Melania, whose uh, supposed initiative as first lady is stopping cyberbullying, yes, right. and Donald Trump. Being an instigator of cyberbullying, where there there have been repeated instances where he, some amount of plausible deniability, you know, uh, says like I can't believe this person attacked me, and then all of his follower Twitter followers go and attack that person. People got death threats. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the carrier deal got definitely yeah. And so Trump. Trump has said, you know, I'm not telling people to go and retaliate. He's not actively saying don't do it. Seems like, yeah. seems like, seems like a certain amount of scientific method, it would be pretty easy to establish cause and effect there. Yeah. I think, I and mean, this is a, another thing we didn't even, even get to touch on in this podcast, but, you know, his relationship with the media and how much he calls them out uh, still or just says they're terrible and biased and all these things. And, and sad. Sad. And, uh, yes, that is his favorite adjective, I guess. Um, but <laughs> that, that I think is setting a really dangerous uh, precedent in general, um, but and using Twitter to you know basically say that all media, mainstream media is awful uh, and not that not to be trusted. Um, also saying that the own his own election that he won was rigged, or that he uh, you know that two million you know people illegally voted. Anyway, that was another. We're gonna, have to, we're, gonna, we're gonna do a podcast on fake news now. Yeah, I know. Uh, and then, which people may or may not be able to trust. That's true. Uh, my last. We're actually all happened. Russian bots. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have the video, though, is to prove that we are not Russian. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> my last so that happened is that Jed Bush had to ask people to clap for him 
trail. Yeah, that was one of my favorite moments. Mm -hmm. Just clap. Yeah. So. So that happened. <laughs> so that happened. So that happened. Risa, my so got? that happened are two moments in uh, Black Excellence in 2016. Nice. Both, both of them are out of the same family. So we had a uh, Beyonce's Lemonade. Amazing. Wow, it was this year. It yeah. was this year. Followed up by Solange Knowles' uh, yeah. Seat at the Table, yeah. which are honestly two of the biggest blackest albums of the year. So congratulations, Knowles, for uh, doing it for America. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Ending on a high note. Yeah. Go listen to those albums, guys. <laughs> that was like a year ago exactly now, wasn't it? That was like a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. That just reminds me of how much money I'm wasting on title. I've had a subscription since then. Are you, you actually subscribe to title? Still subscribe to it. Um. I've just never managed to click on unsubscribe. I'm, <laughs> I'm like really scared that Jay Z's gonna get personally offended. <laughs> I just don't know his reach. <laughs> I just don't know his reach. I read an article at the beginning, at the beginning of this year talking about like, like, because he was already offering like Kickstarter type bonuses if you sign up for Title. Yeah, yeah. It's like, what can we get Jay Z to do to <laughs> get people to subscribe for Title? That's what you should. You guys, you know my theory that they killed Prince, right? Why? Would he not go with them? Oh boy. No, he. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about fake news. So. Jay Z, if you want to come on this podcast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're you could. I will just tell you guys the facts, but facts and let you decide. So a month before Prince dies, he signs an exclusive deal with Tidal to only have his music streamed through the Tidal platform. Mm -hmm. He dies, and then Tidal subscriptions go up like, I think, triple the amount that they've ever been. Curious. I'm just saying. Those are the facts, you guys. Alright. Well, follow the money. I think that I can no longer claim the weirdest so that happens. <laughs> <laughs> But you're right. I'll let you guys ponder. I'm not, yeah. Something to think about. Mm -hmm. I hear things, you know, I hear, I hear. <laughs> so, did you, did you have a, did you want us to come back to you? I'm good. No, you, I'm you, good. We can cut it off here. That's cool. fine. I've got two quick ones. Oh, all right, Kevin. Um, Chicago Cubs won the oh, World yeah, Series. Yeah. Uh, which I'm actually sad about because my favorite baseball fact was the last time they won the World Series, the Ottoman Empire still existed. <laughs> wow, that's a great fact. Yeah, that was my it was my you know, favorite. The Ottoman Empire is on its way back, from what I. <laughs> <laughs> I give it a few years, yeah, but they won too early, and then um, yeah, for me, I mean, just really short, just Chris Christie, man. Chris Christie. <laughs> Chris R Christie. Oh, R.I.P. in peace. Chris Christie, yeah. if you want to come on no, this podcast. No, no, you're not invited. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. If you want to come on this podcast, you may not. I was born in Jersey. I, I can't, I can't, I can't. So, yeah, just quick That's ones. Fair. Appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you, Shane. You got it. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Risa. Thank you, Kevin. Yo. This has been the GPPR podcast episode three of You from the Hilltop. Please clap. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the GPPR podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more, check out gppreview.com, our Facebook page, GPP Review, and our Twitter, at GP Policy Review.